Philippians chapter 3. Are you finding the Lord to be your hiding place this morning? He's a safe haven. I love a lot of the terminology that the scriptures use to describe the Lord to us. As someone who we can come to, you know, and, and, and there's security there, there's freedom there, there's trust. Um, no matter what we're going through in life, some of us are going through some good times and some of us some difficult times, but regardless, we look to him as our hiding place this morning. All right, well, as we've gone through the, the letter of Philippians, last week we, we witnessed the very power of the gospel to transform individual lives. And we, we noted three, in, three individuals last week. We saw the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And we saw how God is able to transform a heart when we comprehend the gospel, what that can do in our life. And it's not that the Lord has called any of us here to be an Apostle Paul. I know, I'm sure not. Uh, or an Epaphroditus or even a Timothy. You know, God has called each one of us to unique ministry depending on what his gifting is in your life and what opportunities he's afforded you. But the bottom line is we should be motivated by the gospel, right? In fact, the gospel should be at the center of everything we say and we do as believers. And the more we comprehend Jesus Christ, him crucified, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the more that message becomes real to us in our hearts, it will change the way we live our life. It will change the way we perceive things in life. We will look at things very differently and we will see people differently. So and rather than seeing maybe people as obstacles, we'll see them as opportunities for God's grace. Opportunities for the power of God when we act... When we understand that we are at our limit, we are at our wit's end, that's when the power of God is able to be demonstrated. Because as the song says, we, you know, we are so weak. We are so feeble. We, we have such little when it comes to our own resources. And so today in chapter 3, Paul is going to draw our attention to sort of uh, another thought. Finally, he says, my brethren. And that word finally, it's not that he's saying this is the last thing he wants to address, but it's what remains. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but to you it is safe. And maybe that's a word that you need this morning. You know, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Him. Especially sometimes I think we, we tend to rejoice in the Lord when things are going well or when circumstances are going the way that we want them to. It's very easy at that point to rejoice in the Lord. I think sometimes though what we're really doing is we're, we're simply rejoicing in the circumstance. You know, it's so easy. You're looking for a parking spot and one opens all of a sudden. Oh, praise the Lord, it opened. I forget about though my attitude before that parking spot opened. <laughs> You know, so sometimes I think we, we, we rejoice in the Lord because things are happening that we like. Um, but the bottom line is Paul wants to remind us to rejoice in the Lord, not our circumstances, not what I'm able to do in my life, but what he's able to do. But more importantly, who he is. It doesn't say rejoice in what the Lord has done even. And we do that, right? I mean, we have to do that. We glory in the cross. We glory in the work of Christ. But we also rejoice just in him. And I, you know, the only way I can learn to do that is if I get to know him. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would come away from our time in God's word with a greater understanding of who Jesus Christ is, 
so that we can follow through with what Paul's reminding us here. And he's reminding us, right? He's telling us it's not tedious for him to keep reminding us of the same thing after the same thing after the same thing. Why? Because we need to be reminded. And we need to be reminded ultimately to keep our eyes on the Lord. And we need to have a right vision of him. And if that vision is clear and correct, the natural response of our hearts, I believe, will be just overflow. It's just you worship him because of who he is. You worship him because of his holiness, because of his attributes, because of his character. And, of course, because of what he's already done. And we, we could not say this correctly unless we already had chapter 2. Until we see that, that work of the cross, that's where God demonstrates his true love for us. And so we can really fully say this as we think of the cross. But notice verse 2 now, because... There are things and there are people that can actually steal our rejoicing in the Lord. Did you know that? There are things in this life that can take away the joy that God wants us to experience. And notice Paul's warning here, beware of dogs. And I don't think he means chihuahuas. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Some weird words that he chooses to use here. And we're going to unpack what he means by this. What he's not doing right now, though, is he's not insulting, okay? He's using irony, and we're going to understand this as we look at the language. Um, but who is he referring to here? Because he's warning us. He's warning the church in Philippi as he's warning us to beware of a certain group of people. Now, contextually, when we look at the church in Philippi, this group, most likely, does not just represent Jews because the Jewish people did not really emphasize circumcision when it came to Gentiles. Rather, it refers to what we'll refer to Jewish Christians who were called Judaizers. And these Judaizers taught that Gentiles first needed to become Jewish in order to really become the people of God, in order to be fully Christian. You had to become Jewish first. They wanted the, the males to be circumcised. They wanted Torah observance. And, and so they were, f they were focusing on things like dietary laws, ceremonial customs, circumcision. And these people had plagued Paul wherever he went. In fact, the book of Galatians is a response, a rebuttal to this group of people. It was a big issue in his day. And everywhere the gospel went out, guess what? The enemy's there to try to destroy the work of God. He's trying to derail it by actually getting our, fo our focus and our attention on something else. Okay? That's one of his greatest tactics. We, we tend to look at the enemy and we, we think of the great darkness, and he is dark, he's evil, he's wicked. But sometimes his ways are very simple. And it sometimes just is to divert our attention just enough, just enough away from Christ to where our focus becomes something else. And that's what's happening with these Judaizers. They're entering churches. Have they reached Philippi yet? Doesn't seem like it very much, at least, at this point. But he's warning them, beware of these people. Now, why does he use these terms? Notice the first term he refers to them as, as dogs, right? And for the Jewish ear, the Jewish people understood this term. Jews used this when speaking of Gentiles who were ritually unclean. Okay? That was typically the word that they would use. They would refer to other people as dogs as well. But when you look at the main usage of it, it spoke of Gentiles who were ritually unclean. Now the irony of it is this. What Paul's doing is he's saying this. 
in Jesus, there's a great reversal. Because the Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ by faith are declared clean. And these Judaizers who are holding on to these ceremonial things have actually become unclean. They have become the dogs. And so in Jesus, everything changes, right? There's a great switcheroo. There's a great reversal that takes place. There's a reversal for us, thank God, where he takes a sinner and makes them holy, as we said, right? He calls the unjust just because of what Christ has done. But for the religious person here who holds on to that aspect of religion, what they formerly thought was clean has become unclean. It's a, it's a very play on words that he's using. The second term he uses, beware of, and notice he uses the word beware uh, all the time, right? Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers. And no doubt these Judaizers thought they were actually doing the works of God. They thought they were on God's team. When in fact, who they thought were evil, the, the Gentiles, have become not so evil. And again, the switcheroo is taking place. Now finally, we get to this really kind of weird word here. Beware of the mutilation. What does he mean by this? Again, it's a play on words. When you look at the Greek, the word for circumcision and the word for mutilation are very close. They're very similar. But the word circumcision means to cut around. This word mutilation means to cut to pieces. And so by focusing so much on trying to get these Gentile believers to be circumcised, they're actually cutting to pieces what is, what is themselves. They're, they're self-destroying. They're self-destructive. They're, they're not really fulfilling the thing that they're trying to fulfill. And the bottom line is that these teachers could cause these Philippian Christians to find religion which would ultimately take their eyes off the Lord and place them on themselves. They would be glorifying in their own flesh and what they do for the Lord. And listen, circumcision was never meant to be an end in and of itself, right? Who was it that implemented circumcision? God. The Lord gave circumcision as a sign, right? It was a sign to Abraham. It was a sign to the Jewish people of their covenant with the Lord that he established. It was his covenant. And it was what he did. And so instead of boasting or rejoicing in what God had done in the covenant, they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And circumcision actually became an idol. A work of their own hands. A holy idol, if you will. It was an end in of itself. And these false teachers allowed Jesus. But they always added unto Jesus. In other words, they actually preached Jesus. These Judaizers would come into a town or into the church. And they would use the language. They would be preaching Jesus Christ. Dying on a cross. So please understand, they're not trying to just say, let's go back to the old covenant and Jesus isn't the solution, Jesus isn't the answer. That's not what they're doing here. Rather, they're preaching Jesus, but they're preaching Jesus and. Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and fulfilling and keeping the law. Jesus and Torah observance. But how many of us realize that when you say Jesus and, it equals nothing? Because it's either Jesus only or Jesus nothing. He either is the way, the truth, and the life, or he's not. And so it's Jesus only. Now, today I, I don't see this as a, 
is a big issue in the church. I don't see people going around encouraging those who believe in Jesus to be circumcised. I don't know. I, I don't travel those circles, I guess, right? But what I do see in the church is there are false teachings when it comes to Jesus. You have to believe on Jesus and be baptized. You have to believe on Jesus and follow the right translation of the Bible. You have to have Jesus and good works. Or Jesus and your nice little financial seed. Jesus and certain theological systems. Or Jesus and worshiping on the Sabbath. Now I want you to think about the folks who focus on those ands. How much joy, when you experience people who are promoting the Jesus and, how much joy do those folks usually have? Or are they dogmatic like the Judaizers that we find here? Are they joyless many times? Because here's the thing. Whatever that and is will ultimately become the focus of that person. Okay? It becomes their focus. So these people will come into churches, even like this one, and they will sing songs to Jesus. They will praise Jesus. But then they will go to people within the church, sometimes the pastor, sometimes individuals, and they will try to hit you with that and. And it's all that they want to talk about. It's all that their focus is. It's that, that and is all that they can think about. And unless you embrace that and, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong team. You're deceived. You're lost. And you know, if you're a new believer, listen, these Judaizers were cunning. They were using the same lingo, the same ter terminology that the believers were. And it's very tempting, especially for a new Christian when you're new in the faith and this person's saying, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need this also. That's a very tempting line for people to follow because these people seem to have it together. They can use the Greek to back it up or the Hebrew maybe in this case. But the and becomes the focus and that guess what? Who then is not the focus any longer? Jesus. It takes our focus off of him and it becomes something you do. There's no more rejoicing in the Lord. There's no more following after what Paul is exhorting us here. Rejoice in the Lord. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Keep your eyes on him. Focus on what he's done. In Philippi, these false teachers with religious pedigree and high-sounding theology could cause the church to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. That's how serious this is. And that's how serious that and statement is. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I I, or, or the but statement, I believe in Jesus, but. Kind of the same thing. It's a way out. It's showing that we really haven't focused su supremely on him. We haven't experienced him and his sufficiency. And so beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision. Right? Now he's really hitting this hard. We are the circumcision. It's not an act we perform, but it's who we are. Why? Because of what Christ has performed. Because of what he has done at the cross of Calvary. It is because of the work of Christ that we can put off the flesh, right? Have you ever tried to put off the flesh in your own strength? Have you ever tried to not live by your carnal desires on your own ability? 
Good luck, right? But because of the work of the cross of, of Christ, we are able to actually put off the works of flesh. We are able to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh, the scripture teaches us. And it's the Holy Spirit of God who actually circumcises our hearts. He takes that heart of stone, he makes it a heart of flesh. He takes it and he cuts off that love for the flesh, that, that um, uh, being overpowered by the things of the flesh, right? That when we become a Christian, we're no longer a slave of sin. We're no longer a slave of the flesh. Now, we have a choice to make. And so the power of the flesh in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, has been cut off. And so just as circumcision was a marker of the Jewish people's relationship with God, separating them therefore from the rest of the world, so the marker of the born-again Christian is the Holy Spirit. Remember he said that they will know us by our love, right? Well, where does that love come from? It comes from the Spirit of God in us. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. And so we are the circumcision. We've become the fulfillment of what that was a picture of in the Old Testament in Christ, not in and of ourselves. And not only are we the circumcision here, but we worship God in the Spirit. Now, this word worship, it's not what we just got done doing this morning here. It's not us proclaiming praises to the Lord, as beautiful as that is. Rather, this word always spoke of Levitical service. And it's contrasting the evil workers who rejoice in the flesh. In contrast, we serve God by the power of the Spirit. So not only are we changed by the Holy Spirit, He takes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, but we actually now serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, have you tried to serve the Lord in the flesh? I promise you, it's not fun. It's grueling. It's painful. It's frustrating. And guess what? There's no joy. But when we worship the Lord in the Spirit, or when we serve God in the Spirit, guess what, we, what else we can do here? We rejoice in Christ Jesus, or as we sang earlier, in Christ alone. Our boast is in Him, not in anything we have done. All that we have done is attribute sin to the cross. All that we have done is given him sin that he had to deal with. And he did. And therefore, we boast in him. He's our glory, right? We don't want to be those Christians who all they do is talk about what they've done. I don't want it to be about me. Because I realize everything I've done ends up failing when it's up to me. He alone builds the house, right? That makes it stand. And so rejoice in Christ Jesus. Have no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in and of ourselves, our own abilities and our achievements. Rather, our boast is in Christ who perfectly fulfilled the Torah, the Old Testament. And so verse 4 now, Paul's going to shift and he's going to make a statement that at first might catch us off guard. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now, it seems like he's contradicting himself here, but he's not. Again, by the Spirit of God, he's communicating something that is just incredible. He's really putting these false teachers out to blast. 
what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's not saying that he currently boasts in his own flesh. Rather, he's, he's going to show the false teachers that he's going to beat them at their own game. And, and we'll see here why. Look at verse 5. Notice he's describing himself here. First, he was circumcised the eighth day. In other words, number one, he's not a Gentile. He was not circumcised when he came to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nor is he an Ishmaelite. He was circumcised exactly as the law prescribed. Number two, he's of the stock of Israel. Again, he's not a proselyte. He was not a Gentile who came to faith in Christ or into the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even as the people who these Judaizers are trying to get detracted, derailed from Christ. What he's saying is he's actually the person that they're trying to make these Christians become before Christ. He's also of the tribe of Benjamin. And this is significant simply because different tribes had sort of different levels of validity, if you will. There There was more honorable tribes than others. And Benjamin was one of the most reputable tribes of the twelve. In fact, Moses declared them to be beloved of the Lord. Remember, Saul, the first king of Israel, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And this tribe would remain loyal to David. And the very capital city, the city of Jerusalem, is in the territory of the Benjaminites. And so this tribe has a history of being well regarded. So it's not just that he's an Israelite. But he's specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's not one of the Jewish people who in this day and age embraced Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. See, there was, remember in the book of Acts when there was this dispute between the Hellenized Christians and the Hebrew Christians? And they were disputing about the, the widows getting the, 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 uh, the supplies? Well, that that story goes way back, much deeper than just an issue with getting supplies. There was a rift between Hebrew Hebrews and Hellenized Hebrews, those who embraced the Greek culture. So the Hebrew Hebrews, who spoke more of the Hebrew language, who were ingrained in that culture more, many times looked down on the Hellenized, the Greek Jews, because they were embracing pagan things in a way. And so he's saying, I'm not even a Hellenized Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have been as Hebrew as you can get, right? You can't get any more Hebrew than Paul. And concerning the law, now he's going away from his, uh, his physical pedigree to actually what he chose to do now as a Jew. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, some of us, we might have our minds tainted by that word Pharisee. When you think of that word, most of us tend to think of sort of hypocrite, right? Because we think of the people who Jesus had his runs in with, and many of them were Pharisees. And so we've kind of looked at that term Pharisee as just a religious hypocrite, just someone who says one thing and does another. But to the Jewish people in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, a Pharisee was someone to look up to. A Pharisee was someone who knew the law. And in fact, they were viewed by many as being most faithful to Scripture. And perhaps many of these false teachers were Pharisees themselves. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now that's odd, right? 
concerning zeal persecuting the church. It's not that he's happy that he did this. But he's showing us he was so committed to his interpretation of the law that when he saw a sect within Judaism go against what his interpretation was, he was determined to stamp it out. And when he saw this sect, this the way they were called, this group of mostly Jewish believers worshiping a Messiah who was crucified on a tree, and he looked at that through his lens saying, wait a minute, the person who dies on a tree is cursed by God. Why are you worshiping someone who God has cursed? Now you fast forward that. Imagine what it was like for Paul when he did experience Christ. And he understood that Jesus became a curse for him. Because of his sin on that tree. It wasn't because of Jesus' sin he was crucified, right? But based on his previous understanding of the law of the Torah... He had to wipe out Christianity. That's how committed he was. He wasn't just your average Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And finally, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. Now, this is not saying that he was blameless in the eyes of God. It's not saying that he was righteous, perfectly righteous, perfectly obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. Only Jesus did that. But rather, it's saying by all outward appearances, if you observed Paul's life and you scrutinized it, there would be no blemish on his record. Okay? Nothing you could point to as though Paul was not trying to follow the law that he proclaimed. He, kept, he was circumcised. He kept the dietary laws. He kept the Sabbath. By all outward observations, you would say, there's a good Jew. In fact, there is the pinnacle. If, if you want to see what is the perfect flesh, <laughs> it's Paul. He's as good as it gets. And that's what he's trying to get at here. The very thing that these Judaizers are trying to get these Christians to become, Paul was. Okay? That's the light of his argument here. And by the way, he was taught this his whole life. This is what he grew up in. We don't want to minimize this. This was his life. This was his upbringing. But we get to verse 7, and this is where the tables turn. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And in these terms, he uses terms that were marketplace terms. Gain and loss. Don't we still use those? Even when it comes to the stocks today? That we have a gain, we have a loss. And notice he said he counted it. It's a calculated decision made in time past that has ongoing impact on his life. That all of his former prophets, the things that he just described to us, were written off as lost because of the unimaginable gain that he found in Jesus Christ. He wrote them all as a loss. When he met Jesus Christ face to face, the glorious Savior, the God of the universe, and he revealed himself to him, I believe at that moment Paul just saw all of his religiosity just fall to the ground and wither away to be nothing. He realized that none of that amounted to anything to make him right with the Lord. It was all loss. He just, he, he just wrote it off. It was nothing anymore when he compared it to Christ. 
And that's what we should do with that and stuff, right? When you compare all those ands to Christ, even baptism, look, it's, it's the Lord's command that we baptize, right? He commanded us to baptize. But if you add baptism as necessary for salvation, then we got a problem. Because that means, let's say the thief on the cross, he's not in heaven then if that's the case. But wait a minute, Jesus said, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. So either Jesus is right, or those and people are right. They can't both be right. And so we would do well when it comes to if you encounter people who are the Jesus anders. Oh, pray for them. Pray for them that they would count it loss. That they would get a vision of the true and real gospel. Jesus Christ, his sufficiency. That's what they need. Anyone who says and is blind. They've not encountered the glorious truth of the gospel, right? They're bound still. They're bound in the flesh. They're still serving God in the flesh. And what an awful place to be. You know what the really sad part is? They're deceived. Paul was deceived when he put his trust in these things. The Judaizers are deceived into thinking that somehow circumcision is going to make a difference. There's deception at the core of the issue of what's going on here. But here's something else that's scary. It's not outright sin that was keeping Paul from experiencing God's salvation. It was his good assets. It was good things. Even God-prescribed things were a stumbling block when it came to Christ. Because again, the emphasis was his trust was in those things, not in the living God. And I found in my life, you know, the hardest people to reach with the gospel are not outright sinners. You know, when we have broken chains house and you get guys coming into the house, those guys understand life is messed up. You don't have to tell them about sin in a sense that it destroys. They know that. But when you have good religious people who go to church every Sunday and who tithe and who have served and who do all these good things or there's this morality that you look at their life from the outside and you say, that's a good person. Aren't they the hardest people sometimes to reach for the gospel? Because they're trusting in themselves so often. They're trusting in the flesh. And you know, the flesh likes to rejoice in itself, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, we experience that even as Christians. You know, you do something, and maybe you even do it for the Lord, but then there's that temptation. That temptation to just take the arrow that's pointing to him and point it right to me. Jesus and, God forbid. There's no Jesus in Luke. There's no Jesus in Calvary Chapel. It's just Jesus. But the flesh loves to get that pat on the back. The flesh loves to be gloried in. And so our good works, our fasting, our giving, our prayer, our meditation, all these are good things, but good things can become idols. Holy idols that keep us from experiencing the joy of the Lord, the presence of God in our life. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Notice Paul's conviction at this point is getting stronger as you go from verse 7 to 8. In verse 7, he merely counted what was previously gained to him as loss. But in verse 8 now, he's counting all things for loss compared to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And in the, in, in the verse 7, the word, again, it was, it was in a way that something that happened past tense that has an ongoing effect. But in verse 8, when he says count, it's in the present tense. In other words, that past decision that Paul made to say, you know what, all of this is loss. I found Christ. That's gain. As he's walked with the Lord year after year after year, as he's writing to us in prison, he now today counts it the loss of all things. In other words, his decision to count it loss has not grown weaker with time, it's grown stronger. And he looks back on his life and is as strong as it was at that moment when he encountered the risen Christ and he understood the glory of God compared to his flesh. Today, he even understands that lesson all the more. And isn't that true for us as believers? You know, when you're first saved, I mean, you realize I am a mess. I am a mess. I'm screwed up. I have nothing to offer God. And you understand the glory of the gospel. But as you walk with Christ longer and longer, don't you understand sin a little bit more? The wickedness of sin? Not just outward actions like the, like the Judaizers are concerned with, but you understand the issues of the heart. And we understand what sin really is now. Isn't it counting it all loss? A measure of maturity, if you will? Because it is in Paul's life. He counts it all loss. Remember, that's a calculated decision. It's not an emotional experience. It's not like Paul went to, you know, the, the latest Christian rock band concert, and he has this emotional experience, and he makes this emotional decision, which can happen, right? You know, that's one reason why our worship here is not sensual. We're not trying to drive up our emotions, because people make decisions emotionally that, guess what? Five days from now, five hours from now, they regret because it was an emotional decision. It was based on the moment rather than a calculated decision. And this decision that he's made is a calculated decision that everything else is lost for the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I can't say this. I can't say that I've lost all things for Christ. I've, I've never been to that place. But Paul has. He's writing from prison in Rome. He has nothing but Jesus. In fact, there were times in his life where he would say, all have betrayed me. <laughs> oh, but Jesus was with him. Jesus never left him, just as he never leaves us, right? He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Yet Paul can honestly say, I have suffered the loss of all things, and notice that word again, count, and count them as rubbish. Some translations say as dung. I count all those previous things that I put my trust in as dung. That's what those things will get me on judgment day. That's the reward that I will get for those things that I've done in the flesh. It literally is, it was the refuse that was thrown out into the street for the dogs. And I wonder if he's not referring to the dogs that he referred to in chapter 2, or verse 2. That he's saying, you know what, the dogs, they can have all that if they want it. They can keep it. That's just messy garbage. Dung. It's not worth anything. My focus is on Christ. 
because he's what matters. He's the source of salvation. He's the source of all joy. And I want us to understand something here. When he says that he counts it as all rubbish, he's not throwing away his Jewishness. He's not saying that he considers the fact that he's a Hebrew as nothing but dung. Most of the early Christians still considered themselves as Jews, right? They believed in the Messiah that they had been waiting for, that their ancestors had been waiting for. So he's not saying that being Jewish is dung. And in recent years, I feel like, you know, the church in some ways has, has grown as we have understood a little bit more of the Hebrew roots of the Christian faith. You know, there's a movement within Christianity, the Hebrew roots movement. And in some ways, this movement has brought good because we tend to view the scriptures through Western eyes, right? We miss the Hebrew content of the scriptures. We miss the culture. We miss some of the background information that makes it alive to us. And it brings life to things. And so in some ways, the Hebrew roots movement has done well in the sense that it's helped us to understand things from a more proper perspective that the scriptures were written from. And in some ways, you know, when you look at church history, we've robbed Christianity of its Hebrew roots. And I've heard Jewish Christians say that when they became faith in Christ, the opposite of what was happening here happened to them. They, they were told to basically become Gentiles in order to become Christians. See, back here, they're telling Gentiles to become Jews to become Christians. But sometimes Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus, the church almost makes them become Gentile and so that they can believe in Jesus. And so I believe there's a great emphasis on the Hebrew roots that's, that's beneficial, you know. And even as believers, we can practice, you know, the holidays, the Jewish holidays. If you've ever had a Passover Seder, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to be able to see the holidays. But ultimately, who do those holidays point to? They point to Jesus. So here's the point. You can celebrate those things. In fact, Jewish believers can still circumcise their kid on the eighth day. Jewish believers can still celebrate the Jewish holidays. It's okay. They don't have to become Gentile. But the bottom line is this. If you have Jesus who that feast points you to, then the feast adds nothing. Do you get that? If you have Jesus... Doing those things doesn't make you a better Christian. Having a Passover Seder doesn't make you more spiritual than the person down the street that doesn't. And that's where the danger lies in this Hebrew Roots movement. See, there's good things when we emphasize the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of Scripture. But there's danger when again we fall into the same trap of the Judaizers where we attribute something in the flesh that we do to add to what Christ has already done. And so if you're going to wear a prayer shawl, praise the Lord, wear your prayer shawl. But please understand that prayer shawl doesn't get you closer to the heavenly throne room. If you're going to blow the shofar, praise the Lord, blow the shofar. Rejoice in the Lord, right? You're free. You're free in Christ to blow that shofar as much as you want with all your heart's desire. But that doesn't mean that he hears you any more than the person who's quiet over here praying to the Lord in secrecy. See, in Christ, we all have equal access. In Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's one way. And here's where the Hebrew Roots movement really goes off course. There are some who actually teach that Jews don't have to get saved. 
that God has a different plan of salvation for the Jews and therefore don't evangelize to the Jewish people. Well, guess where that philosophy comes from? That comes from the pits of hell. And so I would just encourage you, you know, you get a, a Christian book distributor magazine or you're online, you're in a Christian bookstore and you see all these Hebrew things about Christianity. There's good things there we can glean from, but be careful not to go back to the shadow when we have the substance. And Paul's, it's not that he's abandoning, abandoning his being a Jew, but he's realizing he's abandoning his confidence in the flesh, in the things that he does that makes him right with the Lord. He's, like Isaiah said, all of our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. That's the conclusion, that, that it's dung. <laughs> it's, it's rubbish. It's nothing compared to what Christ has done for us. And so what we're going to do, let's just read, let's just finish this section, but I, I, I want to do justice to the remainder of this. Same with the first service this morning. Let's just finish in reading this section. We'll pick up here next week. And being found in him, that's in Jesus, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're going to look at that next week, but I want to do justice to that text. I don't want to just go through it and skim through it. It's such a beautiful text of scripture. We've laid the foundation, though, today for what we're going to see next week as he rejoices in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. Would you forgive us, Lord, for ever rejoicing in anything else but him? Forgive us, Lord, for, the, for just so often, Lord, going back even to the things of the flesh, for being so prone, Lord, to want to rob the glory that only belongs to you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it points us constantly to the Son. And as we will see him one day face to face, Lord, in our flesh, what will we have but bloody, filthy rags to offer you, Lord? And when we compare that to the glory of the crucified Savior, when we compare our rags to him and his beauty, his majesty, his worth, his splendor, Lord, we have nothing apart from you. Lord, by your grace, enable us to rejoice in you, Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. May our boast be in Jesus Christ. May we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, Lord, when people see us, they would see Jesus. That we would be that light in a dark world, Lord. But it would be of you, Father. It would not be our religious trappings. It would not be our religious rituals, Lord but it would be the life of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We pray in Jesus' name.